Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the Architecture Program Curator here at the RA. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this third and unfortunately last event uh, as part of our series uh, Home Sweet Home. We have three wonderful speakers tonight. The presentation will be followed by a discussion chaired by Victor Buckley. Victor is Professor of Material Culture in the Material Culture Group within the Department of Anthropology at the University College of London. His latest book is uh, An Archaeology of the Immaterial published in 2015 by Rutledge, which examines questions surrounding immateriality, particularly the significance of material cultures that paradoxically attempt to deny their own physicality. Uh, in addition, uh, his previous book is uh, An Anthropology of Architecture, published in 2013 by Bloomsbury, which uh, examines the materiality of built forms from an anthropological perspective. Uh, so I think like considering these two books, we couldn't have found like a better chair for, for tonight. Please give a warm welcome to Victor Buckley. Thank you very much indeed for that very, very kind introduction. And um, just to reiterate again uh, the program in terms of how the discussion will run today, um, each one of the speakers will speak for about 15 minutes, and then collectively, as the group of speakers in the chair amongst ourselves here on the stage in front of you, we'll have a discussion over a number of themes, and then we will open up um, the floor to questions to the speakers for hopefully a very spirited 20 minutes of discussion. Um, we are very fortunate here because we do really have an extraordinarily good um, group of distinguished scholars who've worked very closely and intently on the subject of homelessness and dispossession, particularly in relation to the built environment. And it is this question of how we understand the home and um, being in the environment, and most particularly its material conditions, that really is it really represents one of the key questions facing us, not only in terms of planning and policy, but most particularly in terms of architecture and design, in terms of how we respond to the condition of displacement and homelessness. And each and one of the speakers here will have a very, a very well-informed and thoroughly uh, a dis, a discuss, a developed perspective on this question. And hopefully that will stimulate quite a bit of cross-fertilization and discussion amongst all of us in terms of how, in a sense, one might uh, respond appropriately and what would be the appropriate material response to this condition of homelessness. Now, in terms of this condition of homelessness, I've thrown up this image up here on the screen, um, which is from Viollet-le-Duc, um, 1876, um, in his book on the habitations of man, where basically he here is exploring the fundamental conditions of architecture and its origins, but not just simply looking at the conditions of architecture and uh, how it's developed, but more importantly, how we understand architectural form in relation to the most basic institutions of human society. Basically, what it means to be human. How do we understand the our basic relationships, our notions of kinship, our notions of community, our notions of language, and our notions of mind that come alongside this. Now, what is paradoxical about this image, as you see up here on the screen, which is appropriately sheltered the first shelter, figure one, is of course, there's not a building in sight. There's nothing here, nothing at all. And this, of course, is the paradoxical condition under which 
all of our architectonic endeavors seems to emerge from within Villa de Duc's uh, schema here. So I think this represents a very useful way of thinking about what the home is, how we think about the architectonic, and more importantly, how we think about it in terms that are not in the least architectural, when there isn't anything there, when there are no walls, when there are no boundaries, but merely this sort of primordial setting where nothing in fact exists, but actually everything in fact is here and visible and emergent in terms of the basic conditions of what constitutes our humanity as a species. So without much further ado, I'd like to basically take this opportunity to introduce the very first speaker um, today, who is, is Mike Seal. Um, Mike Seal has worked in the fields of youth and community work and homelessness for over 25 years. He has previously taught at the YMCA, George Williams College, <coughs> Kellogg's College, Oxford, and the Open University. He was elected to the Royal Society of the Arts in recognition of his work within the homeless field in 2009. He is also the author of numerous books discussing the issues surrounding homelessness, including Working with Homeless People, a training manual, Resettling Homeless People, Theory and Practice, and he is also the editor of Understanding and Responding to Homeless Experiences, Identities, and Cultures. And without much further ado, I'd like to ask Mike Seal to come to the dais. Just to make a distinction, the type of homelessness I'm going to talk about, I'm not an architect, by the way, um, but the type of homelessness I'm going to talk about is probably what I'd call entrenched homelessness. Now, the distinction I'd make, and it's made by police, who talks about kind of episodic homelessness or temporary homelessness, where somebody is temporarily homeless, has to be temporarily housed, and then get something somewhere to live. What I'm talking about is what I'd call entrenched homelessness, where the actual experience of homelessness becomes a part of how that person sees and identifies and defines themselves. So it becomes a part of their narrative of who they are. So just to make that distinction. Um, I'll start with a couple of quotes from some academics and then some actually some quotes from some homeless people. <coughs> For, firstly from Bra, who says, the question of home is intrinsically linked with the way in which processes of inclusion or exclusion operate and are subjectively experienced. This was in 1996. Three years later, Balchin said that since its inception, housing policy in the UK has been determined by the dominant political philosophy of the time. So the other thing I think it's probably important to understand is for a lot of the homeless people I'm talking about, um, they actually don't have some, it's an empty category. And what I mean by that is it won't necessarily track back to anything. They'll never have had something that they would have called home. Or they'll have had a home that was been disrupted quite early um, and they feel as though they'll never return to. So in that sense, I'm talking about people where it's almost a fantasy. So there's a fantastical version of what homelessness is. And I think one of the consequences of that, but also with how I described the sort of political processes there, it means that these homeless people are, as I'd put it, defined and constructed <coughs> through narratives of housing, homelessness, and home. As anybody who is constructed or has subject to those narratives, they will resist, reject, and sometimes reinscribe those discourses. And I think that's what a lot of homeless people I've worked with will do. 
to the poems. So whether these are signs of resistance or reification, you can make your own decision. But just to give you two quotes, it's from a book called um, The Big Issue Book of Home. If you ever wanted to see what big issue people think about home, there's a whole <coughs> book dedicated to it. Um, and it's a series of poems. I'm not a poet reader, but I'll try. Home is children playing, food on the table, where you never have to justify or explain, where you can be yourself and you can be accepted. Home is where I return to myself. So that's one version, quite a different version. You can take your false notions of security, plastic dreams of comfort and safety, for I've never had it, and I suspect neither has very many people. And now I don't want it. Home is a place inside of me. So quite a different context. Um, I also, in one of the books that referred to, talk about almost homelessness as not just a crisis for homeless people, but a crisis for us all. And what I'd spend a couple of minutes talking about is what I'd call the begging experience, because I think it invokes in a number of people particular things. I mean, we probably need to understand homelessness and home need to understand where that's coming from. But just a quote from Mackintosh and Irving, great book called Begging Questions, if you ever want to read something. And it says, explanations as to the troublesome nature of the begging encounter cannot be found on purely financial or economic grounds. How much upset can be caused to most of us when we discover that we've lost 10 pence? It's about something else. Um, I'll just give a quick anecdote. Um, people know The Strand? I was seeing a play on The Strand, it was a, a couple of years ago, and I was with some friends of mine who were from uh, the Netherlands, and it was interesting, we came out of the theatre, and The Strand is a place where a lot of homeless people have historically slept. Now, where they often sleep is in back of theatres, because you've got a lot of vents, so it's warm, so people will sleep there. And do you know that kind of innocence of an eight-year-old? There was an eight-year-old who was my friend's daughter who said, what's happening over there? Because there were a lot of people who were bedding down for the night. And they went, oh, they sleep there. And she just did that eight, innocent eight-year-old went, why? And we were like, eh. <laughs> how do you explain that kind of structural <coughs> equality? And we said, they kind of just do. And said, well, do they want to? Um, can't, can't we put them up for the night? Uh, can't we do anything about it? And it just became difficult. I've worked with this field for a long time. And my answer eventually was, do you want some sweets? <laughs> I avoided it, because it's a difficult question. Now, I'm not going to go through lists of different common ideas of what home can mean, because I think there's a lot of different versions of that, and I'm not going to go into that kind of detail. I mean, Watson and Aubrey, just as a list in terms of when they investigated it, in terms of homelessness, list things like material conditions, safety, security, <coughs> privacy, space, etc. They have a myriad of explanations. But as I say, I think actually, I think the way that homeless people and home to them is constructed in a particular way there was a really interesting article in 
1999 by Kramer and Lee, who actually has said, you know, it's, and we're looking at an American context, the way the media constructs homeless people and home there is through the prism of the American dream. And part of the way they do that is, is an inversion or perversion or shift of what that American dream means. And if you actually look at a lot of portrayals of the media, and particularly in films, homeless people tend to fit into either the kind of Nietzschean, rugged individualism, you know, which is very much part of that dream, the refugee, which is the person coming to restart their life again within... Um, America, or the kind of nomad, misfit, doesn't quite work structure. So it's a kind of an inversion and a playing <coughs> with the American dream. They also started to, and I continued in my book looking at, well, what does that actually mean in terms of UK homelessness? Is there a British dream? Is there an English dream? And if so, are homeless people constructed through it? And I'd say that that's an unfinished project, but I think in, if you look at the way people will talk about homelessness, I think it gives us some indication of that. Kramer and Lee talk about sort of if there is an English or British dream, although these are highly contested things, because which Britain are we talking about? Which Englishness are we talking about? But if you look at how it's portrayed, it is linked to things like the importance of property, the Protestant work ethic, <coughs> privacy, and that's an interesting thing for homeless people, and the supposed fairness of the British way, which is a total denial of colonialism, but um, that notion of fairness. And I just think if you look at when you see people describe and talk about homelessness, how it mirrors some of those, you know, you'll often get, and contradictory, you'll say homeless people don't want to work, or the myth of a homeless person who then sells a big issue and goes home in a Ferrari or has a big house, which I've heard in probably every <coughs> European city I've been to, a, you know, a re-inscribing of that myth. Um, or these are not real homeless people, they choose that lifestyle. Or there's a freedom of the road, and I kind of envy that. But at the same time, they are kind of sad, bad, or mad, which is the, often the way that homeless people are constructed. Um, and probably the final one I'd say is, is maybe a focus on for us all is looking at that idea of privacy, you know, because one thing I think the home can represent is privacy, and one thing homeless people do is they disrupt that, and they disrupt that in a number of ways. They socialise, drink, even, you know, in, on the streets. It's a street experience, but they also interrupt us and physically interact with us on the streets. And people find that difficult. Um, I remember one of my colleagues said, you know, there's a great myth that one of the people, we look at homeless, you go, we're all not that far from that. It's close to us all. Now, that materially, that's actually rarely true, because actually you'd have to go quite a long way to end up on the streets from most of the places that people are in, in terms of their poverty. But I think it hits on a deeper level, and I am going to quote myself, excuse me for this, um, it's homeless people's invasion of our sense of our own lives that makes us uncomfortable as it reminds us of our own identity crises and inconsistencies when it comes to ideas of home. 
both as individuals and as a society. It reminds us to the degree to which we're all homeless, lost, insecure and fragile. Um, I will finish in a minute. Um, but what do homeless people make of this? I suppose that's what I'll finish on. How do their conceptions of home work? As you can see from the poems I stood out later, it's contested and contradictory and shifting. It may shift positively at points. Um, when I used to work with homeless people, like I said, sometimes it would be about resistance. It would be, and often you resist at the point that you can, which is often the worker in front of you. I remember saying to a homeless person, why do you give me such a hard time? And they said, because I can. <laughs> because if I do it to anybody else, there are consequences. And I was like, okay, could you do it a little bit less? <laughs> but probably the saddest thing that I think is it comes back to a lot of homeless people who will create a myth. They will mythologise and fantasise about what homelessness means. And when it becomes an entrenched thing, what you, I have seen is they will get their flat. They will eventually get their flat, which, again, is this atomised one-bedroom flat, which are not a lot of people actually live in in society, but mysteriously we always say that's the ideal type for homeless people. Let's isolate them more. Um, but a lot of them will move in and quite quickly go, I can't handle this. And then the reasons that they couldn't handle it will become part of their self-destructive narrative. A lot of the homeless people I work with, I think it's the last statistic, if they don't make it within the second or third time of going around the cycle, it, can, it will jump to being about 15 times. That's how the cycle will shift. Thank you. Mike, thank you very much indeed for that uh, wonderful talk. Um, I'd like to introduce our second speaker, um, Helen Taylor. Helen Taylor is a writer, researcher, and lecturer on refugees and migration who finished her PhD at the Center for Research on Migration, Refugees, and Belonging at the University of East London. She is author of Meaning of Home, Cypriot Narratives of Loss, Longing, and Daily Life in London, which was published recently in 2015 by Palgrave Macmillan. Please welcome Helen Taylor. Thank you. So I'm going to talk briefly about the meaning of home for Cypriot refugees in London. And I want to start with a few words from a man called Dimitris. And he said, all these people who think it's easy to throw somebody out of their house and then give him another house a few hundred miles away, or put him in a boat and take him somewhere. If you lose your house where your roots are, where you grew up, it's not an easy thing. Nothing can compensate that. So when I spoke to Dimitris, he'd lived in London for 30 years. He was a successful businessman. He owned his own house. He spoke really good English. His children were as British as they were Cypriot. But he still kept looking over his shoulder at Cyprus. And I wanted to understand that. He was looking at what he'd lost and how he'd lost it. And I think to understand why, we have to look beyond the physical structure of the house to the lived experience of home. Refugees are often defined 
by the, by the lack of a home. They are homeless. Very crudely, a refugee is somebody who's had to leave their home, who's been forced to leave their home and find another home elsewhere. But if we want to understand the experience of displacement, we need to start with a clearer idea of what home means in general, what home means to all of us. So homes aren't built, they're constructed. And the process of construction is continuous. It's a never-finished and ever-changing product of daily, repeti daily repetitions, banalities, life events, shared meals, accumulated memories and social interactions, which all contribute to the production of place. And this is true for those who've been forced to leave their homes, as well as those who can choose when to move and those who stay put. And although home is always changing, the transitions are usually gradual, sometimes imperceptible. But for refugees, there's a sudden and often violent shift, a rupture with everything which made home homely. Home can't be pinned down to a fixed idea. So the title of this uh, talk is called, of this, this event is called A House is Not a Home. So a house might offer the beginnings of a home, but the physical structure can't carry the burden of being home all on its own. And besides, we need to understand how home is constructed for people with no physical shelter, like we've just been hearing about. So home isn't easy to pin down. It's a slippery concept, a feeling, an idea. It's multiple, it's mutable, and it's contradictory. Doreen Massey has referred to space as the product of stories so far, produced by practices and people over time resulting in a distinctiveness which she describes as thrown togetherness, the meeting points between the human and non-human elements of place. And the same is true of homes which have a unique quality at any specific moment in time, as histories, people, organic elements and the built environment all intersect. This is as true of a village in Cyprus as it is of a housing estate in Salford or a collection of tents in the Calais jungle. And the architects here will know better than me that successful house building doesn't just rely on the design of discrete housing units, but also considers the relationship between each dwelling and the rest of the built environment. Houses, shops, churches, mosques, hospitals, streetscapes. It considers how communities to relate to one another, where children play, where neighbours shop and talk, where residents socialise and pray. It pays attention to the green spaces, the trees and gardens, the parks, the woods at the edge of the urban sprawl, and perhaps areas where food might be grown. And it locates all of this in a temporal context, assessing how new houses fit with existing structures and local history, how they will adapt with the passage of time and the changing needs of the residents and the wider community. By complicating the idea of home, we can begin to appreciate that when someone loses their home, they are not only losing a house, and this just to comment on the picture, this house is actually the same as the previous house where you saw the women sitting outside. It's the same house years later. Um, so when somebody loses their home, they're not only losing a house, but also their social networks, their intimate knowledge of how things are done in their neck of the woods, what Bourdieu calls habitus. They're losing the embodied home that is the experience, experienced in the taste of an orange or the scent of jasmine. They're being removed from the fame, frame of memory and their plans for the future. I explored the meaning of home when I was doing research with Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot refugees in London. 
So these Cypriots didn't arrive in the wave of colonial migration in the 1950s. These were Cypriots who came during intercommunal post-colonial violence during the 1960s or when the island was divided as a result of the failed Greek coup and Turkish military action in 1974. And most of the 200,000 Greek Cypriots and 50,000 Turkish Cypriots were internally displaced in Cyprus, but some of them made their way here following patterns of migration. And although I was speaking to these individuals 30 or 40 years after they left Cyprus, the idea of home was still current for them, not least because the conflict that led to their displacement remains unresolved. Although checkpoints in the border finally opened after three decades in 2003, the UN's green line still runs like a gaping wound through the middle of the island, and the houses that were lost remain unattainable. And the big picture there is a picture of one of the borders in the green line. So after collecting these refugees' narratives, I was able to pinpoint four aspects of home which propose a more nuanced understanding. Firstly, the spatial home is the landscape, cityscapes, and built environment. It's not just the house or the other structures we dwell in. It's also the surrounding houses, shops, places of worship, and streets which make up the village or town within the physical boundary of the nation. Secondly, home is always inherently temporal incorporating memories of past homes, the lived experience of the present home, which is in constant flux, and dreams of future homes. The temporal home is found in daily, banal daily routines and cyclical events such as birthdays, religious festivals and harvests. Thirdly, the material home is the embodied and sensory experience of food eaten and sense inhaled, the trees which provide shade, fuel and fruit, and the soil in which food is grown and ancestors are buried, all of which engage the senses to produce the taste, smell and texture of home. And finally, home can be imagined without its human elements, can't be imagine, imagined without its human elements, the complex webs of individuals, <coughs> alive and dead. The relational home refers to the close bonds with family and friends, as well as weak ties with wider social networks, which engender emotional effect and produce social and cultural capital. The Cypriot refugees who came to London had no choice but to try and remake home. There was no formal resettlement programme for them. They were recognised as colonial citizens with special concessions. So they had to embark upon their own resettlement programme, while keeping at least one eye on the homes they'd left behind. The loss of social networks and the knowledge of how things done can be one of the hardest consequences of displacement. It represents a form of poverty which is often underestimated and which was described by Cernia as social disarticulation, the dismantling of communities, the dispersal of networks. One of my interviews, Sally, explained what this was like when he said, obviously it takes time to get used to a new system. City life for me was very strange and scary because everything was different. I felt isolated. Sometimes I felt lonely. Sometimes I felt that I wouldn't be able to succeed. Cypriots had been used to living in close contact with members of their extended family and other villagers who they were connected to through lines of reciprocity that went back through generations. London was very different. For example, Stella found it impossible to carry on with her career when she first came to Britain and had no extended family to look after her child. She did what many Cypriot women did. She bought a sewing machine and worked at home. She told me people should avoid war at any cost. Forget pride. It's rubbish when you lose your own people. You've got no control over your children, over your resources, nothing. It's all under somebody else's control. You just become a little dot in a vast field and you can't function the way you want. 
To get over the sense of isolation and disorientation, refugees use various emplacement strategies to reproduce the feeling of home. So this might be eating home food, growing home plants, meeting others from their community, practicing their religion, performing and producing identity. Cypriots gradually but significantly altered parts of London. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Haringey, but Haringey became the kind of ecological centre. Green Lanes was like the central archery of the Cypriot community at that time. It became known as Little Cyprus. And the refugees slotted into the patterns of migration from the Cypriot migrants who were there before them. So shops such as Yashar Halim, Andres Miklis provided the food, Cypriot food. A derelict, the derelict church, Anglican church, became host to the Greek Orthodox community of St. John the Baptist. Community centres brought people together. And men-only coffee shops with obscured windows replaced the coffee shops from the village square. And front gardens also signalled the presence of Cypriots as white tubular lilies and jasmine bushes began to bloom. Placemaking practices produced London as a new kind of Cypriot home. A Cypriot identity was metaphorically and literally written onto its streets. In spite of initial difficulties, there's plenty of evidence of resilience and resourcefulness in the ways in which Cypriots have built their lives in London. And this chimes with Peter Loisos' suggestion that refugees are often social capitalists, which is the term he used, in that they um, redefine the disruption of their lives as a challenge. Successful home building is in, in a new country is often seen in opposition to yearning for the country left behind. And this here or there dichotomy is reflected in the policies, the immigration policies of nation states and in research looking at refugee settlement. But it's per perfectly possible to long for the home left behind, even for a lifetime, especially when that home was not left out of choice <coughs> at the same time as being successful in the new context. One example of this... One example of this um, approach is in the active village committees which are in um, London. There's one village committee, the Ayason Vrosios village committee, which is a committee from Greek Cypriots who came from that village. And they have the aim of keeping traditions going and keeping the community together. And one member told me that its purpose was to help us not forget our village and keep the flame alive. And the committee campaigns for the rights of refugees to return to their homes and for the reunification of their island. And the villagers continue to hold, um, the, the village was famous for its apricot harvest, and the villagers continue to plant apricot trees in their homes in London. The trees become a symbol of the village in exile. Um, village leader Dimitri said to me, every person from our village, you find an apricot tree in his garden. I think it's a symbol that we like to go home one day. It's a dream. And the village committee also continue to hold a dinner dance where the third generation refugees perform the apricot dance as a way of keeping on the tradition. Um, I just want to end um, with what should segue nicely into the final presentation. Um, so although my research looked at Cypriot refugees, um, I think you can apply this kind of template to other refugee situations. Um, and if you look at the Calais jungle, for example, the relational home was paramount as enduring bonds were established, not just between people from the same country, but across countries and religion, between refugees and volunteers. A Sudanese friend of mine who's now in the UK talks about how he misses Calais for those very reasons, in spite of the incredibly harsh conditions and sense of futility. The spatial home in Calais was seen in the ways in which residents created streets and how areas of the camp became associated with particular communities in the emergence of cafes, barbers, the church, mosque, library, which I'm sure you're going to hear more about. 
Um, and in the midst of these unlikely conditions, the material home was also evident, so that as well as food from volunteer organisations, residents cooked, shared and sold food, while the grounds of the church were planted with flowers as a symbol of hope and peace. And finally, the temporal home was evident in the time passing, the days, months and sometimes years of repetitions in the camp, in the waiting, in the nostalgia for the homes that had been lost, and painful memories of the reasons why they'd been left behind, and in the dreaming of a better future. Thank you very much indeed for that wonderful, wonderful presentation and material. Um, I have the distinct pleasure to introduce our, our final speaker, Robert Mull. Uh, Professor Robert Mull is head of the School of Architecture and Design at the University of Brighton. An architect, educator, and activist, uh, Professor Robert Mull was until 2015 Director of Architecture and Dean of the Cass Faculty of Art, Architecture, and Design, effectively known as the Aldgate of Bauhaus, or the Aldgate Bauhaus, I should say. <laughs> Um, he has taught widely in the UK and internationally and held visiting professorships in Vienna and Innsbruck. In 2013, he co-founded a new school of architecture in Moscow. He was a founder of a member of the Architecture Collective NATO and has worked on urban projects in areas of social de deprivation and political change in many contexts, including India, China, Cuba, Korea, the US, and Russia. Robert Mull is also Publica's Director of Innovation and also a visiting professor at Umeå University where he is developing, where indeed he is developing the Global Free Unit with a number of international partners. He was a curator of the Papers Festival at the Barbican and two shows developed with Publica on the Calais Jungle at London Southbank as part of the 2016 F Festival of Love. Oh, I feel very intimidated by my two fellow speakers and impressed. But I also feel very intimidated by the fact that in the room there are so many friends and collaborators who have worked in the context that I'm going to describe and know far more about them. So I'm certain at the end <coughs> and during the drinks I'll pay for this. Um, what I'm going to talk about is the conflict, if you like, the battle between utility and identity <coughs> and humanity. If you look very closely, both of these images are very conveniently labelled home. This is the, the container camp at Calais, and this is the Blue House, which I'll talk about later. So two case studies. And Helen's given a marvellous introduction to what I want to say about the Calais jungle. So I'm simply going to show you quite a lot of pictures of the Calais jungle and ask you to think about this conflict, this dialogue, between home and utility and home and identity. So I'm going to take you through a walk through the now demolished Calais jungle. As Helen says, it's a functioning city. It has streets, it has high streets, it has areas with distinct different characters, Sudanese area, Eritrean area, and so on. All with different groups of people, all with different characters. The famous migrant church. So this city has churches, very, very beautiful churches. Architecture is present. In fact, very, very good architecture is present. It has this, the Blue House, which I'll talk about later, the center of everything to do with art practice. 
set up by a fantastic bloke called Alpha, who we'll meet later. It has art. Art that describes the reality of what the occupants have been through. It has shops, it has a library, it has schools with programs, with curricula. It has a theatre, the famous Goodchan Theatre, a sort of civic space, the civic space within the jungle. It has a laundry, it has a haman, and it has a high street with what is the best food in northern France. It has a fantastic radio station, and it has houses and homes. This is just a simple little journey from the evolution of the typology. We architects talk about typology, things evolving over time. That's what housing is about. This is the jungle typology. Start off like that, collect together and together, and slowly become more formalized. This journey from humanity towards utility is quite a particular one, and you see it here in Calais most clearly within the shelters. So as marvellous volunteers began to develop a housing prototypes, housing, the home, became more formalised. These simple shelters gathered together in very different ways if you were in a Sudanese area or an Eritrean area, absolutely representing the character and culture of those people who lived in them. They developed their own architectural language, we like architectural languages. This is the language of how you stop nails coming out of tarpaulins. The batten typology. The fantastic cardboard typology. My favourite, the bottle top typology. And the most amazing houses. Houses and homes. But there's also a real conversation about how we as architects respond to this vitality. And this is the journey from that vitality towards formality. More formal shelters, with things that we as architects recognize snagging. And then, of course, the move towards the container port itself, or the container camp itself, with refugees having to move into the container camp and therefore registering and therefore relinquishing their ability to carry on traveling. So. This is on the other side of the road from what we've just been looking at. Here is that dialogue between two different conversations. And of course, this was not just a sort of interesting and aside. This became a really, really important moment, the end of the jungle. This is a marvelous film by the Worldwide Tribe. With the second set of demolitions of the south side of the jungle, there was a lot of violence. <coughs> what is it that was the basis of that violence? What was being fought for? Many commentators will say it was a sense of the identity and the home and the humanity of the strange world in incredibly difficult circumstances with great violence that was built up in Calais. How do we know that this was a city? How do we know that it had that civic quality and humanity? I think one really telling thing is there was a lot of opposition to its demolition and petitions to the French authorities. And the French authorities eventually recognized that it was a city. So what did they do in order to acknowledge that it was a city? They demolished everything, all the houses except the civic buildings. So there is the migrant church with the houses and the homes demolished around it. There is the marvelous um, youth center designed by Grania Hassett and Calais Builds, but without the city. So I think the French authorities proved that this was a city and that this had civic qualities.
by the elimination of everything but its civic buildings. We tried to capture some of this in two shows, one of which was the Papers Festival soon after the second demolition. Many people in this room took part in that, where we just simply for one day tried to capture the humanity of that extraordinary place, and we put together commentators, refugees, and others for one day, locked them in the Barbican, and saw what happened. So these are just some images of that. The art, architecture, and culture of this city. Discussions, volunteers, football matches, food, citizen journalism, an extraordinary sort of sense that actually this vitality was important and could be somehow restaged or recaptured or turned into education or turned into events. And the Blue House again. This followed on, if that was a show that said the cliché, we're all refugees, we all have these same themes, the second show just said this place, these houses are recognisable and they are places that you should acknowledge as being like your own places. The second show looked at that in the South Bank as part of the Festival of Love, where we looked at the Calais jungle as a city, in the same way that architects look at it, by mapping it, by looking at it absolutely cold. And these are just fragments of that. Marvellous, marvellous drawings of the now demolished Calais jungle by Gronja Hassett and her students. A sort of modern Pompeii, Herculaneum, something which no longer exists, which will be discovered and dug up in years to come surveying here the migrant church, so treating it with all the respect and dignity that one would treat architecture. And here, a survey by Publica that looked at the high street of the north side of the Calais jungle in the same way that they apply that methodology to the high streets that you would recognize, a high street in Tottenham or a high street anywhere in the country. Refugees are the same, this city is the same as cities that you would recognize, and you have to dignify them with that same respect. A mapping of the land use of the Calais High Street. Back to Alpha, finally Alpha. Um, the house, Calais Jungle and the house. This is a conversation about what constitutes a house and what constitutes a home. Alpha was the first one of the first people to arrive in the part of the Calais jungle that was then demolished. He was a Mauritanian refugee, or is a Mauritanian refugee. He spent, I think, five years getting to um, Calais. And when he arrived, he started to build a roof that was absolutely the same way as people <coughs> built roofs in Mauritania. So he used local materials and he began to establish this roof. And he thatched it using the very, very traditional ways in which Mauritanian women make roofs, ways that relate to the way in which they plait their hair. So he established in Calais, using local materials, the Blue House home. The Blue House effectively then became the center of everything to do with art practice, it had an art school next to it, and so on. This is the picture of the Blue House the day before it was to be demolished. And the worldwide tribe rescued the Blue House. And the Blue House has been something which effectively they've been carrying with them through various iterations. It went to the Barbican and so on. Why? Because I think the absolute 
clarity of it, the degree to which it carried with it memories of place, was one of the reasons it was so powerful and became the center of a whole series of forms of practice which tried to recapture that sort of sense of, of identity and humanity through painting and through art. So we restaged the Blue House. We got the Blue House. It's a sort of thorn in our side. We're carrying it around, trying to deal with it. So we wanted to restage it in the South Bank. And one of the reasons we wanted to do that was to get, to help Alpha come to the UK by virtue of his house to get leave to remain in the UK. So therefore, he couldn't thatch his own roof. So this is us learning to thatch a roof like Mauritanians under the instruction of Alpha. And this is the Blue House, the Blue House on the hill in the South Bank. Again, a bit like the demolition of the camp itself. How do we know it's such a powerful icon? When the French authorities came to demolish that part of the jungle, it was called the Blue House on the hill. They not only demolished the jungle, they demolished the hill as well. So the power of the house was quite extraordinary. This is Alpha. My dad went to London, all I got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> Finally, because I want to plug some of the work that people are doing, I'm just going to end with four or five slides of the work that um, colleagues are doing in Izmir at the moment, Izmir and <coughs> Lesbos, where I think a lot of the issues that we're talking about between establishing and maintaining identity and utility under the most pressing circumstances are really current, re current right now. So some of the work in Lesbos, building civic spaces, another dome, and here in Izmir, where Kelly Scott and the tribe Turkey are dealing with the informal farm settlements that are popping up around the city of Izmir and are to some extent in tension with the Turkish authorities and need a lot of support. Temperature about to go to minus 15 in the winter. So again, faced with the most challenging real circumstances, how do we as architects and designers deal with utility but also manage to in some way um, carry with us enough insight and um, creativity to also make homes. And this is a conversation about the hinterland of Izmir, but also about the center of Izmir, a place called Basmani, where effectively a new quarter of the city is being developed by Syrian refugees. So it's not just about individual places or marginal parts of the city, it's the same conversation that Helen talked about, which is basically how do you make cities, new parts of cities that can accommodate these changes. And it's about all sorts of very simple processes, as it was in the Calais jungle. And it's about education. And if you want to give some money, you can give it to the tribe Turkey. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for all those wonderful um, presentations. I'd like to ask the speakers to please come to the front of the uh, dais over here. And um, we'll have a conversation 
um, addressing a few questions that have arisen from these presentations for about 20 minutes. And then we'll open up the discussion and the question and answer session. I was asked by the organizers of the session to put forward a few uh, proposals, questions to the group um, that we might be able to um, answer collectively. But one of the things um, that was very present in the discussions was the tension, really, between built form and social life and how that tension, in a sense, is resolved uh, in the various different contexts that we've seen, everything from homelessness on the streets and uh, um, urban settings in Britain to the conditions of the jungle in Calais to the displacements that we've seen in terms of Cypriot refugees from Cyprus to Britain. So I thought um, one of the proposed questions from the organizers I thought was probably the most provocative of all of them. And I think that probably would be a really good way to start off the questions amongst us all here. And it was basically the question, are temporary structures indeed an appropriate response to these conditions that, that we have seen in the various contexts? And just with that, I'd like to sort of open it up to the rest of the group. Is architecture the right way to respond? I think, uh, just to start, I think maybe it depends who, who is doing the responding. So I think if you saw from the photographs of Calais, the people constructing their own homes, responding in that way, partly out of necessity, you know, people didn't, you know, there wasn't a sort of choice to come to Calais and to stay there, but it was out of necessity that people then responded and built their own structures. But I think, um, I think some of your pictures were, of, there was a couple of pictures of Dunkirk, is that right, the two, yeah. plywood. Yeah. So the sort of plywood shelters were, the, were pictures from um, <coughs> Dunkirk. And I think, in, ironically, in Dunkirk, the mayor of Dunkirk was much more sympathetic to the refugees than the mayor of Calais, who's been incredibly hostile. Um, so the, the structures in Dun Dunkirk were built kind of with the support of the mayor and were much more formalised. But in a lot of ways, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a lot of ways I think that Dunkirk was, you know, was seen as a lot less successful because there wasn't that kind of organic um, development of the city as there was in the Calais jungle. And I think it was, it was done with the support and it was done to sort of, you know, looking more like a traditional refugee camp in a way. But there was a lot of tensions there and there was a lot of issues there which may or may not be a result of the architecture. But I think it was notable to spend a day in... Dunkirk and a day in Calais, there was a very different kind of feeling about that. So that's just one observation to kick off. Yes, indeed. Um, yes. This um, I suppose just the, to the question, I'd say yes. <laughs> um, I was just reminded of a lot of homeless hostels, which have kind of almost the reverse approach. And it can be, well, this is only you're going to be here temporarily, so we want to make it utilitarian and depersonalised because it's not your place and you're going to have to move on. Mm. And actually just the homeless people I work with refused to find that deeply alien, alienating to the point where I remember one guy, when he left finally, and he was, they said he was only here temporarily, he was there five years, he took his number with him. So he, he screwed it off the wall and took his number off the door with him because that was the one thing that was unique... <coughs> And he could define himself through there. And the Homes we probably one of the best projects that happened just Battlebridge Basin, not that far from here, yeah. where it was a temporary, and it was so popular amongst people. And it was wooden huts that they had. But the only difference is, when people moved in, they stripped out all the furniture and said, well, how do you want this to be rebuilt? And they're going, 
well, I can personalise it, I can say where the bed goes, and just the impact that that had, just some sense of belonging and some sense of kind of ownership that people had, which is, seems to echo what you've mm. described mm. there. And so the answer would be is yes, <laughs> it's essential. Yes, I wanted to ask particularly to you in terms um, of, um, but also in terms of the tension between the civic and the domestic monument, uh, domestic yeah, uh, structures yeah. that you saw here, and that notion of attachment, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden that being basically the focus of, well, a kind of iconoclastic violence really on the yeah, part of the yeah. authorities. Yeah, I think to answer your first question, no, I, I don't. I don't think temporary um, solutions are tenable. I think if if it's about resettlement and staying, then we have an obligation we, to provide good quality housing that is of a high standard, but that carries with it enough um, care to, to be humane in the sense that temporary housing can be. I think the exception is exactly what you said, where the assumption and the desire is return the refugee to a situation where they've come from, then there is a tension between the idea of the temporary and settlement and making something which is permanent and fit for purpose and so on. And that can become some form of oppression um, if handled badly. Yeah, following on from that, that idea is sort of um, a form of oppression, yeah. as, as, as you suggested there. And that question of agency, which has come up, you know, basically taking off that well, that sort of industrially produced, you know, uh, number plate mm -hmm. and claiming it as your own. And those sort of small actions, mm -hmm. that's a rather surprising small action uh, in terms of assertion of agency in a very, very unexpected kind of way in a context like, like that, but nonetheless incredibly meaningful. Um, and it seems from the number of the contributions that we've had, it is precisely how you facilitate those kinds of forms of agency in relation to the circumstances that one finds oneself in. And, and maybe actually it's the destruction of that that actually, you know, in a sense reveals the truth of it in terms of the importance of those sort of forms of agency and how, in a sense, one, in a sense, is able to husband it, basically, to nurture it and cultivate it. So, in a sense, a sense of emplacement, as, as, you, as you described, um, was facilitated. But I'm thinking about those individual micro-strategies that enable that form of agency and emplacement. And how we can design for them. I guess that is the question I really do want to put to you and also to the audience as well, too, because I think there probably are a number of designers um, and architects in the audience, and certainly at least students of architecture and design, um, in terms of how best one can basically intervene in those, in those settings. I mean, from my point of view, there's nothing really very complicated about it. It's simply to recognize that any of those conditions require the same instincts and the same desires and the same lessons we know about civic space and urbanity and materiality as any other context. And the mistake is to assume they do not and not to dignify them with the same um, processes and design thoughts that one does if one's operating in a more conventional environment. And simply trying to shame um, the creative community into to being as careful with those situations as they would be with any other situation. Mm -hmm. It's really simple. It's not a world apart. 
It was interesting in Cyprus um, in '74 when the when the island was divided that the response of the two governments was very different because the Turkish Cypriot government wanted to establish a separate state and the Greek Cypriot government wanted the island to be re reunified. Um, so initially, a lot of people went and. Turkish Cypriot refugees went and lived in Greek Cypriot refugees' houses and Greek Cypriot vice versa, but there were more Greek Cypriot refugees who needed homes. And the Greek Cypriot government built housing estates that were very dissimilar from, you know, the sort of, I don't know what the architect term is, but from the, the, the type of housing that people usually lived in in Cyprus. So there was these sort of housing estates built specifically for refugees. And they were really problematic in lots of ways that people found it was like this labelling of the refugee that everybody knew that they were refugees. And there wasn't a, st a stigma as such attached to being a refugee because the Greek Cypriot government were very much promoting the rights of the refugees. But the refugees felt that they'd been labelled and that they were constantly being labelled and they were constantly being used in political discourses and political discussions as part of the Greek Cypriot government's kind of policy. And that these, these um, kind of houses marked them out as those people. And then there's, um, somebody called Anne Jepson did some interesting... Um, an interesting study about the gardens and about how the refugees changed, sort of were really keen to these tiny little gardens, so different from the gardens they'd had in the villages or the lands they'd had to grow things, but to sort of make these gardens their own and to plant something because that was a way of changing them and to kind of make them theirs. Actually, I wanted to ask you more on that question of gardens. I was really quite struck by the, uh, what is it, the, the tubular lilies that you described, um, the apricot trees, mm -hmm. etc. Um, distinctly non-architectural um, modes of emplacement, but emplacement nonetheless mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a very profound way. And um, um, I was wondering if maybe all of you, in a sense, could possibly sort of address that question of um, vegetation, gardens, and in relation to the... <laughs> areas that you've, you've been working on? Um, I suppose for me, just to go back to your previous question and then come back to that, it's that um, having some way that people can have and express that agency. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't know how you do that within design build, but you know, some way that people can have an input either to the running of the building or redesign of it or anything, really. Mm. I mean, I remember... King's Cross over there, or a whole lot of B&Bs that were very dodgy B&Bs in terms of their structure, yeah. in terms of how um, the kind of living conditions. <coughs> but we assumed that people were living in there because they didn't know about some of the more state-of-the-art hostels that were being built, which had ensuite accommodation and were deeply alienating mm. in areas that didn't know people. And it was actually that people would prefer to have stayed in these extremely substandard B&Bs because they had some sense of community on there. <coughs> um, one of which was there was a set of allotments that some of them managed to gain access to. And they just took that over and grew a number of things. <laughs> um, but they, um, the sense of ownership they had from that, and I've, you know... Any space that you can do that somebody can have some sense of agency makes all the difference, because otherwise they won't go there. That's the one thing that hopes people can do is they'll vote with their feet. Yes. They don't want to know. They'll go. They'll go. They'll go. Well, actually, alongside with that, that question about obviously taking on like a, what would seem to be like a substandard bedsit or something like that, that would basically fly in the face of any kind of rational planning endeavor that certainly would sort of attract any sort of government funding of any sort. But... The way in which, 
again, like this question of agency and emplacement. But I'm thinking more in terms of, of Helen, which you mentioned <coughs> earlier, in terms of social, um, it was not, it was not, it was a social, I, I think social capital, but I think you had a different term for it in terms of that notion of a social network um, as actually basically being impoverished in terms of that ability to basically produce those sort of oh, social yes, networks. Yes, about social disarticulation, about kind of, yeah, the other, yeah, the kind of collapse of the networks and then people kind of reestablishing those, yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think the plants, I found the kind of the whole thing about plants and food when I was talking to Cypriots was so fascinating. It just kind of, it, you know, it, it, I just, it really did, was a way that people, I mean, it's this discussion of whether people did it just because it's, they were the plants they liked in Cyprus, so why, why not just plant the same plants here because they were their favourite plants? Or whether it was a performance of identity, and it's like, you, lo you literally can, if you're looking for them, wherever you, you can tell if Cypriots live in the houses, because they will have those, there will be a jasmine, and there will be white lilies in the garden. If you walk past, go, that's a Cypriot house, it's obviously a Cypriot house. And, it, and it's, so is it this kind of signalling, you know, in the same way that sort of certain plants are seen to signal British national identity, you know, the oak and the rose, and but is it is it kind of a, a kind of explicit signalling of that identity, or saying look, or is it people signalling to each other, saying look, this is who we are, we're we're here, we're together, or is it just that they like those plants and they like the fragrance of them and they like to eat, like eating apricots, you know? So it's that kind of um, it's multi-layered, I think, you know. I think. <coughs> no, no, I'm intrigued by the way in which, like, through plants, etc., one is actually able to literally grow or re regrow. That kind of social, on that social networking, that was so so important for basically being, producing a sense of place and and, and yeah. home. There was also a kind of a preoccupation with the authenticity as well. So people mm. talked about getting cuttings from Cyprus, and one person had talked about how they had a cutting from a vine that had been taken from their house and then been taken to the other side, and that that was an authentic vine that had come from the village that was lost and that that had now been transplanted in London and it's like this so is... So they would actually take the snippings with them or, yeah, or try people, to do so Yeah, legally, Cypriots legally, you know, sort of like keep the, secrete the plants and kind of, yeah, so it'd be that or it would be the desire for the authenticity. It was a real, it wasn't from the garden centre in Chingford, it was, <laughs> it was a real Cypriot plant. With all due credit to the garden centre in Chingford or whatever. But, but I'm curious in terms of what you've encountered well, no, in terms just, of Calais, some yeah, of those... Well, sort of I was just thinking of another... I mean, some of the really, really interesting um, situations where uh, migrants and refugees are being integrated into um, new society really well it is in places like Calabria and southern Italy, where effectively, essentially, um, migrants with agricultural skills mm. are working in derelict villages, um, rural situations where actually they are able to regenerate rural areas that have fallen into decay as a result of, in fact, migration from rural areas to cities. So I think it's, it's another moment where some quite sort of profound skills are utilised, not in necessarily only to talk about identity, but also to generate an economy and work exactly. and settlement. And integrating yeah, and, and yeah, producing both yeah. social and economic capital. capital. It's also used yeah. in, in a therapeutic context like freedom from torture. They, um, they use like gardening and bread making and things like that. They're, they're used in their sort of therapeutic mm. work as kind of ways of dealing with what's happened. Mm. But I'm, I'm intrigued in terms of these rather ephemeral and non-material ways of basically producing social capital and emplacement and all those sorts of characteristics that we normally associate with built form and the built environment that we would design and build for. Um, I am intrigued, particularly in your presentation, yeah. about destruction. 
Mm. And uh, there's, a, there's a systematic sort of iconoclastic destruction. Mm. Obviously, this, mm. uh, suddenly civic monuments are somehow yes. respected. And what is more of a violation would be, of course, the destruction of those domestic um, cities <coughs> and how a decision like that is made and then how that becomes a condition for future development. It's, it only becomes a condition for future development if one, in a sense, <coughs> reads destruction as, as a way of measuring civic structures. Mm. And, and I think in the Calais situation, the degree to which the destruction validated and acknowledged and proved the civic infrastructure was a sort of pyrrhic victory of extraordinary poignancy. Um, quite what one does with that. Um, I have no idea. It's, it's a very, very sort of sad moment, but I think it is something that can be worked with. And it goes back to that simple truth that one has to simply treat every situation in a way that is f one is familiar with mm -hmm. and treat it with the same instincts. And I was going to ask, what, is, what has been the afterlife of these civic structures? I mean, since obviously these others will know, Others will know a lot more than me. I mean, they, they, they've... they've I mean, some have been preserved, others have been reproduced, used as the basis of, of art practice. There's all sorts of things that have happened to them. What they're not doing is functioning in, in a true civic sense as the basis of a sort of temporary urban infrastructure. And without the population. Without the population. Yeah. I mean, the population was forcibly removed from around them. I think that point about destruction is interesting if you... If you look at the, the sort of the response of the authorities in France, it's obviously their fear. I mean, as you say, it was a city, and it's like the fear that this was a city and it had been created as a city. And I think it extends now with so even people's tents in Paris, so people have like been dispersed. You know, the the the, the police will take people's tents off them or their sleeping bags off them because those are the kind of tiniest symbols of kind of habitation in a way. You know, a tent or a sleeping bag means you're going to lie down, <laughs> you're going to be there. You know, and it's. They're the things that get taken off people again and again because it's this sort of fear that there will be this association and communities will build once people build social networks. You know. Yeah, and I'm curious in terms of your work, in terms of um, suddenly these structures that mm. might seem to be just a little bit too permanent and in some people's eyes or some authorities' eyes. Well, I think certainly, I mean, um, this is my view personal view, but I don't know if people know the bull ring that used to exist in Waterloo, mm. just where the IMAX cinema is, there used to be a huge um, home screen there, it's a cardboard city as, as it's some have described, and a friend of mine who lived there gave me a tour of it, and it was, I mean, I, I, again I'm not an architect, but there was a, a place in the middle where people met, there was a place where bands could play some kind of music. People lived in a, a circle around the main bar, and then if they got into a couple, they moved to the suburbs, which would be it. There was a <laughs> whole map of it. Um, but it was destroyed <coughs> in a matter of two weeks, hmm. I think it was, because an IMAX cinema is very important, and uh, people were given tickets, play displaced all over in various hostels because they said that was more suitable accommodation for them, apart from the fact that they didn't stay there. Um, and they were given free tickets to the IMAX cinema. 
<laughs> in exchange for the extent, which they went in and trashed. <laughs> and trashed <laughs> after. <laughs> the only appropriate response. <laughs> Actually, maybe on that note, <laughs> this might be the opportunity then to open up the floor to questions to our, our assembled speakers here up on the dais. I believe there's some uh, microphones, and this one as well, uh, circulating about. So um, I see a question here, yes. Thank you so much. Uh, my question actually to uh, Dr. Helen Teller. Uh, I read your book actually because I used it a lot in my dissertation, which was on the oh, meaning. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> it was on the meaning of home of, uh, for Syrian refugees living in the UK. So my question is, to which extent do you think that the fear and the, uh, the horrifying memories collected by the people, or by refugees who left their houses or homes basically, would impact on their b sense of belonging and their redefinition of, of home by the time they arrive somewhere else. So do you think, because uh, through the book, like most of the Cypriot refugees were romanticizing kind of their, the idea of having a tree in the house, but like the Syrian experience was quite difficult or let's say different because uh, most of the people whom I asked, and mainly they were male, young male uh, refugees, they were saying, home for me is more like security, is a place where I'm not detained or I'm not uh, evicted, or that depends on the civil war. So would you think that this would impact by the, that which depends on the, on, on, on the uh, perception or the experience that they had to go through before they leave their homes? I think definitely, I think... Um the, the experience that somebody's had, the reasons that they've left and their experiences before will, will colour how they view home and whether they view the, the home that they left behind as somewhere that can be returned to. And there was different responses amongst people I spoke to as well. That For some people, they could never imagine Cyprus being safe again. And it was interesting that the Turkish Cypriots, because they kind of were exposed to more sort of episodic, prolonged kind of... Um, but they were enclaved. There was sort of different um, intercommunal violence that went on for a longer period. Um, a lot of them spoke less about return, whereas for the Greek Cypriots it was, you know, a catastrophic event in 1974. Um, so they kind of... Um, they, they managed to maintain this image of the ideal home that was just suddenly taken away. But certainly I think, you know, we're looking at other refugee communities that what you're leaving and what, what you, how you perceive what you've left behind and the, the reasons you've left it behind is definitely going to affect whether you can ever see that, that place as home again. And I think also um, the distance of time as well, because I was talking to people who'd been here 30 or 40 years. So although if they spoke about the war and what had happened and people who'd died, it was very like, real to them, you know, they'd never forgotten it. And it was some, there were narratives that had been told again and again collectively. Um, there was, that, there was that distance of time. And so, you know, people... And people also, depending on the political project that they adhered to, depending on their own politics, whether they were kind of a bi-communalist or whether they believed, you know, in certain political projects, that also affected their attitudes to, to return and, and how they saw home. So obviously there's no, you know, there's a sort of a danger in thinking that everybody, everybody wants to return. It's not true. There's a danger in thinking that everybody thinks, you know, that the, the, the lost home was ideal. It's, you know, it's contradictory, it changes people. So people would say to me, of course, I want to go home. And then if you said to them, do you think you'll go home if there's a solution? They'd say, well, probably not because my kids are here. 
and they go to their university and my grandchildren are here and well obviously no I won't go back but I want the right to go back so there was it's contradictory people have you know different opinions and, and obviously I think people fleeing from a situation of very recent war their attitudes to that place you know they, they've they've left because they want safety so I think you know it's 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 a it's a different situation did anybody else want to was it, I think it was a question of ourselves I was going to ask I suppose is like I suppose that idea of diasporic space because any community will start to fantasize and fold in narratives that they've gone through into this imagining of what this community is and was that they have come from and I suppose that that in itself becomes I wouldn't say a fantasy but a particular version of those countries which may never have existed and certainly may not now and I suppose it's just how does that how do we account for that evolution I haven't got any answers to that. <laughs> I think we have one question there, and we'll follow with you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. I, I guess this is for Robert. I was interested in the, in your discussion of the the tension between um, kind of creative practices and and the process of formalising those creative practices, and specifically in, in relation to strategies of resistance. I mean, I thought of. Um, Michel de Certeau and talking about how how we do we, we find ways of rendering dominant structures pliable through everyday practices and th th that those are forms of resistance. Mm. So I wondered how how do you maintain a sort of a structure against which or from which you can appropriate strategies of resistance while still making it flexible enough to continually incorporate those practices of creativity and and change of movement because what i was so struck by was the difference in those two images of of the the kind of authority's view of what a, a, a civic site should be and and the other of the jungle which was had grown up processually and organically mm -hmm. um but i i it feels it's necessary nowadays, whether it's in that context or even in, in, a, in a site like London, to to kind of to think about the broader structures of kind of making an authority and everyday practices of making and resistance. So I just wondered what. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I suppose um, in a very simple way, one one is acknowledging or recognizing that in those quite extreme situations, one is introduced again to the transformative power of creativity, um, and that that has enormous agency in the most difficult situations. And in fact, um, refugees carrying with them some sense of visual vitality are actually free to exercise that in a way which has great agency in a way, in the sense that in a more familiar, habitual environment that we work, we work within, such as London, it's harder to have that clarity. And so I see the volunteers, refugees, who've peopled, who people who have worked in those extreme situations as having a unique insight that I would like to see returning to more conventional forms of practice through education and through 
making architecture. Does that answer the question? Yes. <coughs> oh, we have a question right here. Yes. 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 Um, I don't know if it makes much sense. I think it was a good segue of what you said uh, last to my question, because I, I am really interested in this idea of, of home. Uh, we discuss it as an opposition to the physical, to the, to the house, uh, and kind of like a dichotomy of, of dwelling or inhabiting. But I'm, I'm actually really interested in the idea of home perhaps as an infrastructural um, tactic of, of coping, of, of surviving. Um, and I, I, just, I just wanted to know your, your ideas on this, because I, I do think that homelessness is kind of like a hallmark of modernity in a way, and perhaps this is very contemporary um, set of practices and, and situations that we come across. Yeah, so I wanted to know your thoughts on that. Let me have a think. <laughs> <laughs> Any responses? <coughs> Sorry, that was a bit off the cuff. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. <coughs> so you were asking for what responses? Or I, I think I'm just interested in knowing your ideas of if home is actually a tactic. Yeah, it's yeah. actually kind of a construction as a counterpart <coughs> mm -hmm. to do it, to kind of survive things, to overcome things. It feels it's no longer a place or a space in memory, but it's just actually something we balance against. Or mm. Well, I suppose it's finding any... Uh, I suppose what I do like about homeless people, or just people, is they will always find places of resistance. You know, it's like those two poems I had. Some people were kind of buying into this notion of home as an ideal thing, that we'll all be safe. And a lot of homeless people just totally buy into the idea of we're not safe, any of us. <laughs> it's a myth, it's a delusion, you know. You can have a physical space that can be taken away at any point, you know, and historically have been. Um, you just probably in the UK have a bit of a delusion that it's not going to happen as quickly. Um, and I suppose what I've always admired is groups will find out, whether it's from the, the convoy and the travellers, I'm a canal boater, and just an example, you know, the convoy, when it was stopped from travelling, moved on to boats. And then when that stopping, they're moving back off to boats and actually building benders on the side of the river. <laughs> so I suppose all I'm really trying to say is that people will find sites of resistance, which talks about my other colleague there, and find ways to reject this notion of home going, well, what's it doing to us? You know, A friend of mine who used to sleep on the streets for years, and he, this was part an inversion and part not. He used to see people, and he'd be drinking cider at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, watching people go to the city. Um, <coughs> he saw the levels of stress that they had and the angst that they had, and he just went, who's the mug? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe we have a, a question right there. Yes. Um, hi. Uh, thank you guys for the lecture. It was really, really um, educational. Um, Maybe a simple question. Is there any conversation about maybe not calling Kalai Jungle a jungle anymore? <laughs> Just because every time I hear that word, it's really strange and cringy and very stigmatizing to what that space actually is. It just brings this whole colonial narrative that's very not 
I, I didn't I didn't even know much about what that space was. And then I saw it and I was really struck about how kind of really developed and beautiful, um, you know, in terms of like like um, the relationship that the people managed to build in in that time frame yeah. with that structure. So it's just very strange to hear it being called over and over a jungle, and that the, the other meaning that that brings. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it was called the jungle. I suppose if, if one's going to talk about, I don't have to reinvent the name of Milton Keynes to talk about Milton Keynes. So I think just calling it what it was called is just part of that sort of directness. I mean, there was a lot of debate about the use of the word jungle at the time at which it was called that. Can I comment on the jungle topic before I ask my quick question? Um, really interestingly, I think that uh, the, the, the jungle initially was in the woods in Sangat, so that was a part of that narrative. Um, the individuals living there claimed that as the word they wanted to use to call it. And there's also a conversation about whether jangal in Urdu means something that they claimed as well as, as ownership. So there's a really interesting conversation there, but we can have that afterwards. Um, I also have a question for Robert. Um, actually, sort of two, sorry. I was captivated by the fact that you talked about, you, you narrated your PowerPoint slides with, in the present tense. You talked about these structures in the present tense. And I'm wondering if that's an intentional decision, and if so, what that might say about the relationship you see between the physical infrastructures that you saw as so potent in Calais and this notion of home. Um, and the second part of my question builds on the fact that even though those civic structures don't exist in Calais anymore, there are still some 800 individuals sleeping there. Yeah. Um, and do your thoughts and, and work extend into the current situation in Calais? And if so, how? Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe others should talk about what's going on in Calais at the moment. Um, the present tense, I'd never noticed that. That's quite strange. Um, I suppose in terms of, I mean, for me, the jungle has, whatever, Milton Keynes, has moved into a different space. It's a space that I see as a reality, even though it doesn't exist. And I think some of the work that the mapping and the recording of it that was done has allowed it to move into a very, very different sort of frame. I think, I mean, we're there's a big dialogue about what happens to the Blue House, and Alpha still describes it as his home. Where is my house? Where is my home? Um, and we've got quite a challenge to get it back to him, because um, it's in this country and he wants it back in Calais. So it's sort of present, but it's sort of moved into a, a present, which is similar to what Helen's talking about, where something, the memory of it is present and is really real. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, I'm kind of interested in the way that all the talks tonight discuss this idea of the home through um, an extreme condition of whether it be refugees or homeless um, um, people. And I was wondering about um, what Mike Seal mentioned as the degrees of homelessness and also uh, that Robert Mull mentioned the uh, publica and the mapping, the kind of techniques that were used to analyze the Calais jungle, which were um, the same as used that we used in London. And what I'm wondering is your reflections on how your idea, your idea of the home is changed by looking at these extreme conditions. I mean, I think one of the points I was trying to make was that, that home, Home is the same for everybody. It's just that people's experiences of it vary depending on the circumstances that they're, they're in. So my kind of like four aspects of home could be applied to 
regardless of what situation they're in, they could be applied to somebody's situation. So I think we do need to understand home as a concept for all of us, regardless of our, you know, our circumstances, rather than just you know, always focusing on the crisis situations, because it, de it dehumanises the people involved in those crisis situations, because you know, they're, they're grappling... Their, their idea of home is the same as everybody's idea of home. It's just that it's been dealt a blow in a way. So that was kind of my starting point, I suppose. I suppose, me, it's that... Um, and I've described probably some fairly extremes, but I think it does reflect back on ourselves in uh, either in how we react to things like homelessness, but when it becomes a mirror to ourselves, we're in London. Probably the vast majority of people in this room will never own their own home within London because you'll never be in a position to do so. Sorry. <laughs> um, and we'll spend up to 80% of your income on rent. Suddenly, kind of existential meaning comes into focus. You know, and even in places like Birmingham, where um, house prices are remarkably cheaper, but then a lot of people who work in different underground sectors of the economy are working for £2 an hour. So the dynamics are the same. So I think that kind of idea of home ownership is just becoming beyond crisis point. You know, and government, the opposition and the, um, the government at the moment are chucking out figures of house building that, with the best will in the world, won't happen. You know, they will not happen in that space because there just isn't the infrastructure to make those happen in the time spaces either party is talking about. So I think they are extreme, but I think they're getting closer to home, as it were. I, mean, I think in educational terms, um, and, and I can only talk about it in those terms, um, students and, and others who have engaged in difficult situations and weathered all of the accusations of being dilettante, carpetbaggers, <coughs> tourists, and so on, are much, much more effective and tuned to recognising the same issues and responsibilities when working in much more familiar situations. And it, and it in some way reconnects um, participants with a sort of more deeply felt ethical and sort of moral compass which I think is very effective when reapplied closer to home and is often obscured by the codification and conventions of educational practice as we practice them here. We have one more question here. This might end up reiterating some of the points from the last question, um, but the privileged and Westerners generally have always been fascinated with conditions of informality uh, and just people sat people's tactic to survive and whether that is through placemaking, structures, we all have a fascination with it. The Victorians used to go to the East End to, to have a look and we have slum tourism, we have all these things. And then we also have institutions such as ASF, Habitats, where Westerners go to places where people have been displaced and have had to forcibly have tactics of survival. What is the role and the value of Western architects going into these situations? Because yes, we're getting a lot back. We're contributing to an education and to our own typologies, but are we just taking information? And it would be interesting to talk a little bit about that because it's something I've been grappling with for the last five, six years since I've been working in informal settlements. 
Well, it's another evening, that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it is, at one level it is, it is I think one has to recognise it is, it is, a, it is a selfish activity in a sense. And I think if that's discussed and that becomes part of the dialogue, then I think it, it's useful. Um, I think uh, if you don't do that and you don't talk about it, then there's real problems. But those problems are no excuse for not getting involved or being useful. I suppose I can't answer in terms of yeah. architects, but I suppose the duty of any privilege in any sphere is to recognise that that's what it is. And to continually find ways to use that for whatever ends you can positively and subvert it at every opportunity. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think what's interesting about Calais, I mean, was this idea that it wasn't, you know, it, w it wasn't being done by the authorities, it wasn't even being done by the big charities or the big NGOs who were, you know, normally kind of involved in those situations, that it was... You know, there was lots of organisations called People to People Solidarity, but it was, you know, it, obviously the privilege of being able to go there and to leave again is, like, really stark and obvious to you. If you leave with your passport, you go and spend time, you, you know, you, you can leave again and those people can't. But there, there was, I think there were attempts at that kind of, like, um, community that wasn't just, you know, the, the, the volunteers who went were also involved in community with, with the refugees. It wasn't a process of othering. Not that I'm saying there was nothing problematic that ever happened, you know, but I think, I think that's kind of, um, it was heartening in a lot of ways that, that I think, and I think that's affected how um, issues of, of, of discussions about forced migration that are taking place now, I think it's affected that because the idea was that the experts went in and solved these situations and that didn't happen in Calais. And then I think it, it's kind of thrown up a lot of questions for people about kind of, you know, sort of how these things are done. I'm afraid, looking at the clock, that we've overrun a little bit. Um, but I would like you all to please um, give a round of applause to the speakers. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.